0: Hi, this is Corey Turner. And along with my wife, Simone, we are the senior pastors of Numa Church. I wanted to thank you for listening to our podcast today. You're about to hear a message from one of our team that we pray builds your faith and empowers you to follow Jesus more closely. Enjoy the message.
1: It is such a privilege to bring the word. And so I want to thank Pastor Corey and Pastor Simone and the team for entrusting me with the pulpit tonight. And I want to take you straight into our Scripture tonight. If you've got your Bible, uh, go to Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4. And if you have an old school Bible, you won't need to move around uh, in the pages too much because we're going to root ourselves in this passage here tonight and and, uh, see what God speaks to us through this. Mark chapter 4 and verse 35. If you're there, say, I got it. If you're not there, say, I don't got it. Now, some people need some help. But anyways, even if you don't got it, it's going to come up on the screen behind me magically as well. So Mark chapter 4, we're going to go to the verse 35. And it says, On that day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. This is Jesus speaking. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And, on the, and other boats were with him. Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey Him? Who then is this? I want to speak to you tonight from the title, The Jesus I Never Knew. The Jesus I Never Knew. Let's pray, and then we'll get into this together. Father, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for Jesus and the Holy Spirit. I pray that right now You would just illuminate Your Word to our hearts and speak as only you can to the depths of our soul. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. Anybody into tennis around here? Anyone into the tennis? Kai, are you into tennis? You should post about it more often. Um, <laughs> no, I... Uh, <laughs> at Kai Shane Shower. if you haven't followed the, <laughs> the legend that is Kai on Instagram. Um... I grew up in the UK, now don't hold that against me, but um, growing up in the UK, uh, there's some unwritten law that says that we can only have one decent tennis player on the circuit at any given time. (laughs) And so pretty much for the majority of the population for most of the year, no one cares two hoots about tennis, except for two weeks in the middle of June when the Wimbledon Championships are on in London. And during those two weeks, hello feedback, during those two weeks, um, everyone decides that they wanna be the next Roger Federer or Rafa Nadal. And so they go and buy a brand new tennis racket and they head down to the local courts and decide that they're gonna get their tennis on. Now my family was not exempt from tennis fever and so one particular tennis season, we found ourselves down at the local court and we were playing a doubles game. And the game was between my, myself and my older sister on one side and my dad and my younger brother on the other side. Now, I'm a middle child, so I'm already ridiculously competitive. <laughs> Add that to the fact that when you're about 11 or 12 years old, the two people that you want to beat most in the world at anything is your dad and your younger brother. Yeah. And so in this particular occasion, I remember that myself and my older sister were losing badly in this game. And this is the worst moment of my young life. And uh, I'm just in a miserable state. You know, I'm sulking around the court. I'm stomping my feet. I'm throwing my racket. Basically making Nick Curious look like a goody two-shoes. You know, like, it's that bad. And anyway, one way or another, we managed to start working our way back into the set, probably because my dad was feeling sorry for us. But... I remember that from a few games down, we managed to draw level. And I I remember hitting the forehand winner down the line that drew us level in the game. And all of a sudden, tennis fever took over me. And I was no longer on the, the, the rubbish council asphalt that the council had put together and decided to call a tennis court. But I was now on centre court at Wimbledon and I had just hit championship point. Now, I don't know if you're familiar with the tennis player, Pat Cash, who was an Aussie tennis player back in the 80s. Uh, He won Wimbledon once, and he started this trend where uh, they would run up to the Royal Box, where all the coaches and the family and the friends uh, sit, and it's quite a climb at Wimbledon. Um, But anyway, he started this trend. I was familiar with this trend growing up watching Wimbledon. And so as I hit this winning shot down the line, suddenly tennis fever was coursing through my veins. And so screaming a victory cry that made Braveheart look like a wimp, I'm running now, and between me and the royal box, in my head, um, was the net, right? And so I decide, at 11 years old, that it's a great idea to try and hurdle the net, And I was this close to making it. (laughs) Unfortunately, although most of my body made it over the net, my trailing foot didn't. And in that comedic moment, everything stopped. Except, of course, it didn't. And I quickly hurtled towards the ground. And I'll never forget lying there, you know, bereft of several layers of skin, but more importantly, bereft of any sense of pride. (laughs) I'll never forget the words that my dad spoke to me as he came over and bent over my mangled heap of a body. And so I'm laying there in agony, you know, waiting for some words of comfort to stitch my frazzled ego back together. He comes over and he says, Joel. So I look up, wait for some comforting words. Joel, he said, And this is going to be a beautiful moment, you know, like Lion King, Mufasa, Simba, the whole works. I can hear Elton John singing in the background somewhere. (laughs) Joel, he said, you're such an idiot. (laughs) It's words to live by. But the point is, I don't know if you've ever found... That just when you're on a surge of forward spiritual momentum, you suddenly hit something that brings you crashing back down to earth. You know, we often hear that the Christian life is something like a journey, and that's because, you know, uh, nothing really paints a better picture than a journey when describing the Christian life, they're describing the experience of following Jesus. Journeys involve movement, they involve action and stops and starts and detours and delays and trips into the unknown. And on our journey, every follower of Jesus at some point will confront the wall. That's what that's there for, the wall. That's not supposed to be a tennis net, it's a wall. (laughs) And just as a physical wall stops us from moving ahead, God sometimes stops us in our tracks, in our spiritual journey, in order to reveal more of himself to us and to transform our character. And often, unlike my tennis story, which was totally self-inflicted, the wall tends to come through circumstances and crises that are beyond our control. The ancient church fathers had a name for this wall. They called it the dark night of the soul. And they taught that in order to mature spiritually, we need to embrace God's gift of the dark night or the wall. And this is the only way that we grow in Christ. Now, it's important at this point to note that the trials that we encounter every day are not the dark night of the soul. You know, the, the traffic jams, the annoying boss, you know, the car breakdowns or your neighbor's dog that won't stop barking throughout the night. That's not the dark night of the soul. For most of us, the, the wall appears through a crisis that we did not see coming. For some of us, it turns a whole world upside down. It causes us to question ourselves, to question God, to question the church, and we discover for the first time that our faith does not appear to work. We have more questions than answers as the very foundation of our faith feels like it's on the line. We don't know where God is, what He is doing, where He is going, how He is getting us there, or when this will ever be over. If you think about it, the church collectively has faced something of a dark night of the soul over the last two years. You know, COVID with all its lockdowns and uncertainty, for all intents and purposes, brought church to a grinding halt. And even though, thank God, we're, we're past it as much as we hope for the, the time being with lockdowns and so on, I believe that there are still some lingering questions, the answers to which can only fa- be found in God's Word. And regardless of whether you find yourself in a dark night right now, it won't be long until you do find yourself in one because it's a crucial part of our maturing in Christ. And this message was birthed out of my own dark night of the soul that I experienced just 18 months ago. And it was brief and it was very intense but, and it was like nothing that I had experienced before. And it was during this dark night of the soul that I came to this passage in Mark chapter four and in chapter five as well. And here we have a series of accounts where Jesus demonstrates his power over danger, demons, disease, and death. And each of the characters that we'll meet in this story are experiencing their own dark night. They have hit a wall and they are desperate. And we don't have time to unpack each story Tonight, What struck me though as I was studying this passage again recently were the questions that were asked. And I believe these are questions that we ask in our own dark nights to the soul as well. But each question is met with a truth spoken by Jesus. Yeah. And they are truths that we need to hear in our dark nights. Yeah. But we must be willing to wait and to listen. See on the other side of the wall is a greater revelation and a deeper intimacy with Christ. We read here in Mark chapter 4, the disciples are caught in a storm. They are experiencing a seriously dark night. And one of the first questions that we ask God when we come to the wall is, don't you care? And the truth in our dark night of the soul is that we want solutions for our symptoms, but Jesus deals with the source. See, the dark night of the soul is often perceived as the absence of God's presence. Oftentimes we mistake what looks like inactivity on God's part to be an absence of His presence. But Jesus is in the boat with the disciples. He's in the same storm they are in, and yet the peace that He carried within Himself allowed Him to be asleep in the storm, sleeping on a cushion. It's interesting that when the disciples woke Jesus saying, don't you care, that He didn't address their question directly. Rather, He got up and He rebuked the wind and He said to the sea, peace, be still. Because Jesus' truth to the question, don't you care, is to rebuke the wind, the source, and to speak to the sea, the manifestation. Because often we're only concerned with the manifestation. We say to Jesus, can you just make these waves calm down? But Jesus isn't just about the symptoms. He wants to speak to the source. He also gets to the heart of the matter and he says to the disciples, why are you so afraid? Have you so little faith? Because already at this point, the disciples have seen Jesus do amazing things. Like they've seen his power at work. They had seen him cast out demons and heal crowds and cleanse lepers. And yet their faith was still infantile. All they could say in response as the storm calmed down and the waves ceased was to turn to each other and say, who then is this? You know, an important aspect of the wall is that it's not just a one-time event that we come to and then we just pass through to the other side. More often than not, it's something we return to as part of our ongoing relationship with God. We see this in the case of the disciples as well because not long after this storm in Mark chapter four, they face another storm. Now, why would Jesus give them another storm to face? Surely they've been through it once They've got the picture. They've got the idea. He calmed it all down, and now they're good. But no, they face another storm just a few chapters later. In Matthew chapter 14, it paints it more vividly. This time, the disciples are on their own in the boat. The storm is raging. Jesus comes walking on the water. And the disciples freak out, thinking he's a ghost, until he says, Do not be afraid, it is I. And so then Peter tries the water walking business. It doesn't go so well for him. Jesus pulls him back onto the boat. As Jesus steps onto the boat, the storm calms down. The winds cease and the storm dissipates. And then notice their reaction this time when the storm dies down. This time, instead of saying, who then is this? They fall at his feet and worship him saying, surely you are the son of God. Because on the other side of the wall is a greater revelation and a deeper intimacy with Jesus. On this side of the wall, we might be asking ourselves, who then is this? On the other side of the wall, we'll hear the words of Jesus saying, peace, be still. See, the disciples' issue was not just the physical manifestation of the storm, but the inward turmoil of their heart. Jesus doesn't just deal with symptoms, he deals with the source. And now having calmed down the storm, they get to the other shore and they encounter another character who is experiencing his own dark night of the soul. If you go into Mark chapter 5 and verses 2 onwards, and when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately they met him out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always car- ca- crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he said, what have you to do with me, Jesus? Jesus. We hear in this man's desperation a question that we all might ask when we encounter the war. What does Jesus have to do with me? And the truth is that in our dark night of the soul, we might seek control, but Jesus offers freedom. We seek control, but Jesus offers freedom. See, this man here is a picture of the brokenness of the human condition. We know that the enemy's strategy is to steal, kill, and destroy that which God values. And here we have a man, for reasons we're not given, is riddled with demons. And notice what society's attempt to offer a solution is. Control. Behaviour modification. You know, bind him up, send him away. It's so often the way that we deal with our own struggles, our darkness, our addictions, our shortcomings. If we can just... Push it away to where no one will notice. If I can just control it enough. It's kind of like my version of cleaning the house. When people are coming over. I can tell by those laughs, you know exactly what I mean. You uh, establish which areas people are going to see. Like the, the kitchen or the dining room or the lounge. And you pick up all the junk that might be laying on the floor the kids. Uh, you know, toys that they haven't picked up, even though you've asked them 15 million times to do so, and uh, and so what you do is you designate a room, and you pick up all the junk, and you throw it into the designated room where you and you close the door, and you pray to God that no one opens that door. And we do that in our own lives as well. If we can just keep the junk hidden away somewhere if we can just control it if I can just hide my mess and junk away in the dark but then we come face to face with Jesus and the enemy's lie is what would Jesus have to do with someone like you but where we seek control Jesus offers freedom here in this story Jesus casts out the demons and the man is set free And now he's in his right mind and he's sitting with Jesus and he's begging him to go on his mission. But Jesus replied to him, go home and to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. What have you to do with me, Jesus? Well, apparently a whole lot. So in the darkest night of his soul, he encountered Jesus. And the first commissioned evangelist was a healed and whole demoniac Gentile. He went from asking, what has Jesus got to do with me? To saying, look what Jesus has done for me. Because on on the other side of the wall is a greater revelation and a deeper intimacy with Jesus. Our story continues here in this chapter. And now again, imagine being in the shoes of the disciples. Because they've just... Come through a storm where they've almost died. They finally make it to the other shore, only to be met by a screaming guy full of demons. They see Jesus then cast the demons out. They end up in a bunch of pigs and 2,000 pigs jump off a cliff into the sea. Now the disciples are getting back into the boat, into the same sea that they've almost just died in. They get to the other side of the sea. The crowds are back and they're all trying to get to Jesus. And out of the crowd comes this man, Jairus. We read in verse 22 of Mark chapter 5. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And Jesus went with him. Now, Jairus is in the darkest of nights. His 12 year old daughter is on the verge of death. Now, Jairus is a man of means. He's used to getting things done. Like, he's the ruler of the synagogue. He was in charge of the heating and the cooling and the, you know, the run sheets and the, you know, getting the prayer cards out and, you know, all that jazz. He was the guy in the know. And yet, he's got a problem that he can't solve. And it leads him right to Jesus' feet. And he had just enough faith to believe that if Jesus lays hands on on his daughter, she will be made well and live, so he pushes through the crowds to see Jesus. He risks the angers, the anger of the other rulers, the religious rulers who would have been so mad that he was even having a conversation yes. with Jesus, but not only that now he 's inviting him yes. to his house and so he 's on the way to his house now with Jesus, but the journey is not straightforward and There's a bunch of delays until finally a message comes from Jairus' house in verse 35. Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Why trouble the teacher any further? And the truth is that in our dark night of the soul, we react in fear and Jesus responds to faith. We react in fear, and Jesus responds to faith. I mentioned earlier that this message was really birthed out of a dark night of the soul that I experienced back in October 2020. And like I said, it wasn't long, but it was intense, and it was something that I hadn't experienced before. And we'd actually just finished recording our first album as Numa Worship, Stillness, and... Um, we were waiting for it to be released, and it should have been a really exciting time uh, for me personally, and, and we were actually starting to come out of lockdown at that time as well, so I should have been bouncing off the walls with excitement, but um, instead I felt this cloud of darkness come over me, and what I can only describe as a, a depression just dump all over me. I had no uh, motivation, no zest for life, and I didn't want to get out of bed. I didn't understand what was going on, but I knew something was wrong. And I remember forcing myself to get out of bed one morning and and just thinking to myself, I just need to get to work. I just need to like get going. I just need to get on with things and get past this. And I was sitting doing my morning devotions with this dark cloud just hanging over me. I remember saying to God, what is wrong with me? What is wrong with me? Why can't I get this right? Why am I dealing with the same issues over and over? Why can't I just get past this? What is wrong with me? I remember saying to God, God, I'm so sorry I'm such a pain. You must be so fed up with me by now. Now I was reading this passage and I came to this verse. Why trouble the teacher any further? I don't know if you've ever felt like you're too much trouble for God, but I certainly felt that way in that moment. And in that moment, I felt the tangible presence of God envelop me. And in my spirit, I felt him say, you're never too much trouble for me. In that moment, I realized that I had always approached Jesus as a teacher. If I was getting things right, if I felt that I was making the mark, then I could approach Him. But when I knew I was in the wrong or there was something not quite right or if I had fallen short, then I felt like I had to keep my distance. I felt like I was too much trouble for Him. I realized that the way you view Jesus determines your approach to Him. See, teacher was the same term that disciples used in the boat during the storm. They said, teacher, do you not care? Now Jairus' servants are asking, why trouble the teacher any further? Jesus is the greatest teacher there ever was. But if you simply view him as teacher, it will seem like you are troubling or inconveniencing him. But if you have a real revelation of Jesus, no request will be too much trouble. And you might be here tonight and the voice in your mind is saying, why trouble Jesus any further? You know, when Jesus heard those servants say that, he says in verse 36 to Jairus, do not fear, only believe. In fact, those words, could be better rendered stop fearing just keep on believing we react in fear but Jesus responds to faith on the other side of the wall is a greater revelation and a deeper intimacy with Jesus the team can join me on stage here as we wrap this thing up but you might have noticed that we skipped one particular character in our series of encounters here the woman that we know as the woman with the issue of blood. She had been in her dark night for 12 years. She had tried everything, spent every last penny, but her condition was no better. It only grew worse. And she had heard reports about Jesus, but she needed to encounter him for herself. And so considered unclean, she'd been forced into isolation and cut off from society, community, and family. She risked everything to have her moment with Jesus. So she pushes through the crowd, she reaches out and touches his garment. And immediately she felt she was healed of her disease. And this time it's Jesus' turn to ask the question. He said, who touched me? Because in the dark night of the soul, we retreat to isolation, but Jesus offers restoration. We retreat to isolation, but Jesus offers restoration. See, there were all these people around Jesus, but only one reached out in faith. That tells me that it's possible to be around Jesus and not touch Him in a way that brings about any healing or change. It's possible to be in an environment with Jesus like this and not reach out in a way that brings about any healing or change. See, Jesus could have just carried on walking. After all, the woman was now healed. Her issue had been dealt with. But Jesus isn't about just symptoms. He's about the source as well. Jesus went and stopped and He spoke to the source of her fear and trepidation. Verse 32 says, the woman knowing that what had happened to her came in fear and trembling and fell down before Him and told Him the whole truth. Now watch what Jesus says to her, daughter, daughter. Because it wasn't just a restoration of health but of relationship. He said, your faith has made you well says first go in peace and secondly be healed of your disease now you've got to understand that it's not that Jesus isn't on this side of the wall with us it's not that he's absent but on the other side of the wall is a greater revelation and a deeper intimacy with Jesus on the other side of my wall was the Jesus that I never knew On the other side of the wall was a Jesus who I found wasn't troubled or bothered by my failings and my shortcomings. But one who would meet me in my fear and speak to the source and say peace be still. He would look at the darkest spaces of my life and say look at the good things that God has done for you and the mercy he has for you. Don't give in to control but live in my freedom in my depression and anxiety. He would say to me, you're not too much trouble, just keep believing. He would meet me in my isolation and my brokenness and restore me into relationship. You might have come in here tonight with questions like, Jesus, do you even care? You might have come in with questions like, what would Jesus have to do with me? You might have come in with questions like, why trouble Jesus any further? But I want to remind you that just because you can't see his activity this side of the wall, doesn't mean he's absent.
0: Thank you for joining us for this message today.